morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building, as I say every week. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm, I'm one of the pastors. As Jason mentioned, uh, we're going to get into the book of Esther momentarily, but uh, a couple of things that, that I want to stop and mention, a little bit of housekeeping before we jump in this morning. Number one, uh, it's my wife's birthday, and I have an amplification system attached to my very self right now, so I'd be a little remiss if I didn't say happy birthday, honey. So happy birthday, honey. Uh, let me embarrass you. Uh, in front of a crowd full of people. Um, the second thing is this. Uh, if you weren't aware, about a month ago, uh, we established a strategy to roll out some information to people in the church uh, by way of what we call town hall meetings. And so I went and sat with every one of our community groups, um, all seven of them. We have seven small groups right now as a church and are continuing to grow that ministry, but went and sat in living rooms with uh, all of the people who were able to make it to those small group gatherings to share some things that are happening in the life of our church, some needs that we have, some things that we're excited about that are coming down the pike for us as we look forward to this next season of ministry. Uh, but we didn't want to um, keep that just to, to those rosters. We wanted to roll that out to the church at large and make you all aware of the things that are happening in the life of our young congregation. And so um, this morning, I want to share one of those things with you. Uh, we don't have time nor space to, to talk through all of those things that happen in those town meetings on one Sunday morning, but we're going to continue to trickle these things out to you all. But wanted to make you aware, um, one of those pieces that we talked about was the budget and finances of the church. Um, we, we're a five-year-old church, and one of the unique things about our history as a church is, is that if you've been around from the beginning, you know this to be true, that rarely have we had those moments where we've uh, come before the congregation and said, hey guys, we have this real need financially that we're struggling uh, with respect to, and, and we need everybody to jump on board. Um, God in his kindness, um, through the generosity of his people, from core group gathering phase back five years ago to, to this point now, um, has, has really been kind, and, and we haven't had too many of those moments. Uh, we have fairly seamlessly moved through each phase and stage of our infancy as a church. And, and last year, January of 2017, we actually crossed the threshold uh, of becoming a, a financially self-sustained church as we uh, let go of external support uh, sources uh, as those uh, seasons and phases of support that were coming from the outside ended for us. And, and we carried that. And we've, we've carried that for over a year now. But one of the things that we found is that um, just because you cross that threshold doesn't mean that you necessarily now have uh, money in the storehouses to um, set you up for a rainy day or a a stormy season that needs to be weathered. And, you know, the, the reality of what we talk about by defining the church as a people, we are the church. We don't go to church. We come to be with the church. The reality is if we all individually face storms and, and seasons of difficulty and suffering, then it makes sense that when we collectively come together and call ourselves the church, that we would experience things like that. And one of the things that we found is that um, though we can... Uh, call ourselves financially self-sustained, having crossed that threshold. Uh, we're not a 40 or 50-year-old church that has um, you know, money in the storehouses to prepare us for seasons like that. And we've weathered a little bit of that over the last few months and realized that, that we need to put that before you, let you know that, let you know that you're, you're needed, um, particularly in, in this context as we seek to, to spread some of these things that happen in those town hall meetings to a crowd like this. We know that People who are not yet connected to community groups are likely exploring whether or not this is the church for you, whether this is where you're going to land and call this church your home. 
And there are probably a number of things running through your mind right now as you're processing that decision. And, and perhaps one of the things that's not running through your mind is, does this church need me? Uh, in a way that, that maybe if we were to connect you know, elsewhere, uh, we would find ourselves in a sea of people and, and wouldn't necessarily be, be needed quite to the degree that this church needs us. And, and so we have a unique part to play in, in the story of a church that is five, year old, five years old. And what that means is that we're going to kindergarten this year. We're, we're still really young. Like we, we have our tiny little uh, unicorn backpack on like my daughter. Um, and, and we're making our way into our first kindergarten class. And, and we're, we're still trying to, to move forward and grow up and mature. And, and basically what I'm saying is we need your help. We need all hands on deck. So if you've heard this message before, I apologize for that. I hope it's not redundant. I hope it's not overkill. But, but I want everybody to hear that and know that you matter. Um, you're not just a, a face in a sea of faces. Uh, you're not just another number on an Excel spreadsheet. You can actually help a church to continue to mature and grow and move forward and keep pointing more people to Jesus. And so I hope you're encouraged by that, and I hope that draws you in all the more. With that being said, on to one of the most fascinating stories in all the Bible, the book of Esther. It's a story filled with all kinds of unexpected twists and turns. In terms of storyline, I think it's important to have a little bit of the backstory. About 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, God's people were exiled to the land of Babylon where they lived for roughly half a century and Toward the end of that half a century, the Persians ended up conquering the Babylonians and the Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus, issued a decree allowing the Jews to return back to their home. And many of God's people decided to take Cyrus up on his offer, but, but some didn't. Some decided to stay in the land that they had come to know, a land that had essentially been swallowed up into the three million square mile landmass known as the Persian Empire as the story of Esther begins, Persia's been the dominant empire in the world for a little over half a century, roughly. And there's conflict in the land of Susa, the Persian capital, during the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus. And it's the kind of conflict that poses a real threat to the Jewish people. And the question that they're faced with is, is God still with us? Is he still with us or has he abandoned us to our sin and the judgment of exile? Will we be wiped out from the storyline of redemptive history forever? And as the story goes, Esther, a Jewish orphan raised by her older cousin Mordecai, becomes queen of the Persian Empire, and she ends up saving the Jews from certain annihilation. It's a, it's a crazy story. It's, it's a story that deals with all kinds of massive theological and existential questions. I've shared those over the last couple weeks with you. Questions like, do you ever find yourself wrestling with what God's will is for your life? We could all just stop there and go, yes and amen, we need the book of Esther. Do you, do you ever wonder what to do with those moments in life that God's fingerprints appear to be absent from your story? Do you ever struggle with the need to be in control of your own life and destiny, fighting tirelessly to make sure that your plans aren't frustrated, uh, overanalyzing the significance of every single unfolding event in your life to a fault? Have you ever wrestled to understand how divine providence and human responsibility work together? And these are just a few of the questions that a book like this invites us to ask. And if we're willing to go there, what I think we'll find is that this book is an incredibly powerful weapon to wield in the battle against sin and unbelief for us. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. It's a, a little to the left of the book of Psalms, if that's helpful. If 
If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have is a little difficult to track with, you can take that Bible as the church's gift to you and explore it on your own time as you leave this place. We got a, a good bit of ground to cover this morning, so let me pray for us and we'll dive in and get to work. God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see your character, your nature, who you are, how you work in the lives of your people created in your image in a book that doesn't even declare your name. And yet we see your fingerprints all over the pages of this story. And I pray that we would know as we walk away this morning that your fingerprints are all over the pages of our story and that we've been caught up into your story, your great story of redemption in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see the significance of the gospel this morning as we walk through chapter 3 of this incredible book. I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would help us to see our deep need for you, that you would help us to see uh, the reality that we are a progressive work of sanctification, that you are working to conform us to the image of your son, uh, but we are not yet the glorified versions of ourselves. And, and I pray that we would uh, see the need for deeper repentance and faith in our lives and, and that we would also rest assured knowing that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything necessary to secure our redemption and that in him we are sons and daughters of the great king. God, would you move by the power of your spirit to work in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives as we leave this place this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Here we go. Previously on Esther. The, the book of Esther begins, you go back to episode one of this incredible Netflix series, um, begins by introducing us to the great king Ahasuerus, which is the biblical name for Xerxes. Xerxes was a, was a powerful man who uh, inherited the Persian Empire from his father at the age of 32, which that in and of itself should be terrifying to us. The, the largest empire to exist up to that point in all of human history. He thought very highly of himself, Xerxes did. He was essentially the king of the known world uh, during his time in human history. The, the story of Esther opens with this, this panoramic three million square mile picture of the kingdom, but the lens quickly zooms in on the fortified city and capital of the great Persian empire, the city of Susa, in the third year of the reign of King Xerxes, not long before the king is to go to war against the Greeks in, in an effort to expand his empire and his glory and as the lens further zooms in on the king's palace, we see that the book of Esther begins with a party. And it's a party like none of you have ever thrown in your life. As the king gathers thousands of his officials and servants for 180 days of absolute debauchery, commanding their loyalty through an open bar, a harem of women, and party favors of gold and silver. If you have kids, this should stick out to you. My, my daughter went to a birthday party yesterday, and she got fairy wings as a party favor, and she came home, and I was like, dude, they spent some, some cash on this party. Fairy wings, like plastic, mesh, legit hot pink fairy wings. My daughter's wearing them around the house the rest of the day. That is nothing compared to party favors of gold and silver. But the king doesn't stop there. He throws a second party for the people of Susa, both great and small, this one lasting for roughly a week. The, the ultimate purpose of these lavish parties that the king throws, we're told, according to chapter 1, verse 4, is to show the, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. It's all about self-glorification. 
The author of Esther spends much of chapter 1 showing us the fullness of the splendor and glory of the king. Everything belongs to the king. Everything exists for the king. Yet something happens midway through chapter 1 that sets the stage for everything that is to come for the remainder of this story. The great king Xerxes invites his queen, Queen Vashti, to parade around a room of drunken men as the king's trophy wife. And shockingly, the queen declines his invitation. And it becomes... Crystal clear to us what the author of Esther is actually doing. He's showing us that the most powerful man in the known world is not ultimately the one in control here. That the great King Xerxes can't seem to maintain his own dignity in the midst of the defiance of his queen. In other words, the emperor has no clothes. And and in his moment of great embarrassment and exposure before the entire empire, he issues a royal order banishing Queen Vashti from his presence forever, which sets the stage for chapter 2, episode 2, as the king's men suggest an international beauty pageant to be judged by the the king for the purpose of selecting a replacement for the recently banished queen. And, And though upwards of what historians argue to be 400 young women who are uprooted from their homes were only introduced to one of those women, a young lady by the name of Esther, who just so happens to be living with her cousin Mordecai in the city of Susa, who just so happens to be drop-dead gorgeous, and who just so happens to be the exact appropriate age to participate in the king's Miss Persian Empire. Esther, along with all the other women, undergoes a year's worth of beauty treatments, and then she has her one night with the king, and the king becomes smitten with her. And he chooses Esther, a Jewish orphan, to become the queen of the Persian Empire. Which means that Esther now has influence on the unfolding events of this story moving forward. And it doesn't take very long for us to see her influence at work as her cousin Mordecai learns of an assassination plot on the king's life. And he passes the word on to Esther, who happens to be in the palace now, who passes the word on to the king. And the king lives to pursue his own glory another day. And Mordecai finds himself in the king's good graces. And as chapter 2 comes to a close, we're told that Mordecai's heroics are recorded in a book of memorable deeds, setting us up to expect him to to receive some sort of reward. Which brings us to episode 3 of this True Life Netflix series. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to, uh, homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I mean, you, you talk about a quick escalation of conflict, right? I mean, in six short verses, we go from Jewish hero to Jewish holocaust, just like that. A, a few things worth mentioning in these verses. Number one, we're meant to be a little thrown by this promotion of Haman. 
Again, chapter 2 ends with Mordecai's heroics being recorded in the king's book of memorable deeds. Yet it's Haman who's rewarded for no apparent reason here as we begin chapter 3. And the author of Esther tells us that uh, the promotion of, of Haman, it's not just any old promotion, but rather the establishment of Haman as second only to the king in power. He's the prime minister of Persia. Second, we must be talking about a pretty obnoxious human being because we're talking about a society in which bowing to people of prestige would have been instinctive, and yet the king has to command people to bow down to this man. Just because you have power doesn't mean that you have people's respect. Again, just look at the encounter between King Xerxes and Queen Vashti going back to chapter 1. Third, and maybe most critical, the hostile relationship between Mordecai and Haman that we see here at the beginning of chapter 3, it actually predates this story. Just look at the way that the two men are introduced to us in the book of Esther. If you go back to chapter 2, Mordecai is first described to us as a Jew. And here in chapter 3, Haman is introduced as Haman the Agagite. Agag was, was king of the Amalekites, which just happened to be the, the first people on the planet to at attempt to destroy God's covenant people. If you go back and you read about Israel's journey through the wilderness, while they were journeying, these people, the Amalekites, sought to destroy them. And in response, we're told that God cursed the Amalekites. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 17, where we're told that then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That as the story goes, later when Saul became king of Israel, he was directed to destroy the Amalekites. And, and even though Saul won the war, we're told that he failed to do so. He took Agog prisoner, but he didn't destroy him. Had he done so, think about this, there would be no Haman in the book of Esther. Which is a helpful reminder of the reality that some of us, even today, are haunted by the sins of our fathers and our father's fathers. That, that this book of the Bible most certainly declares that God can use jacked up, blemished human beings for his redemptive purposes. But, but this should be a sobering warning to us not to take obedience to the king lightly because it does matter. It does have consequences. It does impact. That it's not just that we're haunted by the sins of our fathers and our father's fathers, but there's this reality that the decisions we're making even present day are gonna have impact on the generations to follow us our kids, and our children's children. You have this sort of mirroring of the relationship between the Jews and the Amalekites in the relationship between Mordecai and Haman here in this story, which helps to make sense of why Mordecai refuses to bow to this man. Verse 4 tells us that it's because of Mordecai's Jewishness, that as a Jew, he can't bring himself to bow to a descendant of one of Israel's oldest enemies. Mordecai's Refusal to bow fills Haman with fury, and so he does what any sensible person who has beef with another individual would do, right? Hey, I know, I have a really racist idea. I don't really like this guy Mordecai, so let's wipe out his entire people group. In a fit of anger, this man plots the pre-Hitler Holocaust here in chapter 3. Similar to, to Queen Vashti's disobedience leading to this royal order addressing all of the women of the empire... So Haman calls for mass genocide based on the actions of one human being. 
and you thought Xerxes was villainous. It's, it's both amazing and terrifying what, what pride will stir up in the human heart, is it not? But, but honestly, what would we expect? Would we expect the right-hand man of the great King Xerxes to be a man of humility, going back to all that we see in chapter 1? The story continues, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, not to be confused with the automotive dealer, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. This, this idea of casting lots was pretty common throughout the, the ancient Near East. What would happen is in the first month of the year, those in power would roll the dice to determine which dates on the calendar to plot certain events, be it war or, in this case, you know, the annihilation of the Jews. And so they, they determine through the rolling of dice when this is actually going to happen on the calendar. The idea is that the destiny would be left up to the gods of fate. And so the dice are rolled, and as we'll see a little further in the chapter, a date is established for a holocaust. And, and it just so happens that it's not a date in the immediate future, but rather almost a year later, 11 months from the, the moment of the rolling of the dice, providing God time and space to actually turn the tables on Haman, as we'll see as the story unfolds. See, here's the deal. Haman is a man who believes in destiny. He just fails to realize that destiny doesn't lie in the roll of the dice, but in the hand of the living God. He's incredibly crafty as he approaches the king. He doesn't portray this as a, an act of personal revenge. Rather, he comes across as being concerned with the king's best interest. Even his accusation is a mixture of truth and lies, the very playbook of the devil of hell. The Jews certainly had their own laws, but they weren't, they weren't acting in collective disobedience to the empire. Haman manages in one conversation to convince the, the pliable king uh, to convince him that the Jews are not to the king's prophet, though it was the Jew who actually just saved the king's life at the end of chapter 2. He manages to convince the king that all of the Jews should be destroyed, though the king's very queen is of Jewish descent. Haman knows that the way to the king's heart is through his bank account, just like the enemy, Satan himself. He knows the way to our heart. He comes after us in form-fitted ways, attacks us, luring us in. Luring us off the gospel path. Haman offers the king 10,000 talents of silver, which just FYI, that's a lot of silver. Um, that's roughly a little over 333 tons of silver. That's over 150 elephants weight in silver that he offers the king. He throws out a number that's roughly the equivalent to a year's worth of taxes across the three million square mile expanse of the Persian Empire. That's a lot of hatred for a people. 
Haman gives the king 10,000 reasons to wipe out the Jewish people. And the king, having depleted his treasury through this recent military defeat at the hands of the Greeks, complies with, with Haman's request. And so we're told that the king hands over his signet ring to Haman. The symbol of executive power, unlimited authority. In other words, Haman has access to the nukes. And then we, we see it unfold in verse 12. In light of that power that he's been given, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14, and a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You have this edict calling for the mass genocide of the Jewish people written, and it's a call for a bloodbath. Just, just look at the language of verse 13. The instruction is to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. I mean, wouldn't you think one of those three words would be sufficient? And the object of wrath, according to verse 13, is all Jews, not some Jews, all Jews, young and old, women and children, babies learning how to crawl, elderly people unable to defend themselves, women in their third trimesters. Amazingly, this edict calling for the destruction of the Jews is sent out on the eve of Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover story, going back uh, before the story of Esther in the history of God's people, the Egyptians had been oppressing the Israelites for quite some time. And, and in his providence, uh, providence, God had raised up Moses to command Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Moses and his brother Aaron found themselves in a battle of wills with Pharaoh. And God, in order to demonstrate his power, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. You can read about the ten plagues, very famous part of the story of scripture and we're told that the plagues went from bad to worse culminating in the 10th and final plague the the death of the firstborn where God said to Moses I'm going to bring about redemption and here's how here's how it's going to happen I want you to take a lamb and not just any lamb but a lamb without blemish or spot and I want you to kill that lamb without blemish and I want you to smear its blood on your front door and that lamb is going to essentially act as your substitute. Judgment is coming upon the land. No one is exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of your firstborn son. And the Israelites were told, did as God commanded. And that night, God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of the unblemished lamb. And the Israelites were told were spared and went on to institute this annual celebration known as Passover, a reminder of God's work in rescuing them from Egypt. All right, think about that. Get that in your mind. Back to the book of Esther, the edict calling for mass genocide of God's people is sent out on the eve of Passover. As the Jews are planning to celebrate their deliverance, their rescue from Egypt, Haman is in the process of plotting their annihilation as a people. It would have undoubtedly brought up questions for the Jews. Will the same God who spared us on the night of the Passover spare us from death at the hands of the Persians? 
Is he, is he going to come through? The, the Jews could have been annihilated right there on the spot, except that, again, as fate would have it, Haman's casting of lots, his rolling of the dice, establishes a date of roughly 11 months later on the calendar. And as I've said several times now in this series, by fate, I mean God's providence. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says it this way. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That, that Haman's out for power, he just he has no idea the power he's just pitted himself against. His casting of lots gives God plenty of time to roll out his rescue plan for his people. And as chapter 3 comes to a close, we see this chapter end with the city of Susa thrown into confusion. Everyone in the city knows that there's something wrong here. Everyone except Haman and Xerxes who order mass genocide and then sit down for a cocktail. We're meant to ask, what will become of God's people? Are we about to encounter a pre-Hitler Holocaust? Is that what's about to to go down in chapter 4? Stick around. The next episode is going to be a good one, I promise you. But what about this one? What about episode 3? What's the takeaway for us? A couple things that I think are significant to make mention of here. For one, a passage like this reminds us that we're not ultimately in control as much as we would like to be. We live in a world where, like Mordecai, our good deeds can go unrewarded, and like Haman, the wicked do prosper. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially if you're like me. You're one of those people who struggles with the root idol of control. You want to be in control of your own story. One of those people who fight tirelessly to make sure that your plans aren't frustrated. We're forced to admit that we're not ultimately in control of our lives, no matter how hard we try to be. But here's the good news. The good news is that the one who is in control, he's one of almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness. Karen Job says it this way in her commentary. She says, God is invisibly at work, making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. We cannot see the end of things from the middle and must walk by faith, not by sight. The Lord will bring a greater good, his perfect plan out of all the frustration we feel and and out of all the evil we experience. When all is said and done, God uses even injustice to fulfill his promises to us. Do we trust him? That's one of the great questions of the book of Esther. Do we trust God with our lives, even when we can't see him? Second thing to point out in a passage like this is that pride never leads us down a path toward anything life-giving. It's destructive to those in close proximity to us, and it's self-destructive at the same time. Just look at Haman. Look at his life. This is a man who, he has... All the power you could possibly want in the world, and yet unable to obtain the respect and approval of other people. Can't seem to get it, though he desperately hungers for it, desperately longs for it. Maybe you can relate to that. I know I can. Going back to last week, always looking in the mirror, always trying to measure up. C.S. Lewis defines pride this way. He says, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. When Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the danger of being puffed up, that word translated puffed up, it literally means overinflated. It conveys this idea of being filled with so much air that you're ready to burst. Kind of like a balloon. When you blow up a balloon, eventually it's going to pop. The human ego is like air filling up the balloon of your being, you could say. And the more we become full of ourselves, the more empty we actually become. And the closer we get to our own destruction. 
The, the human ego is an absolute mess, if you, if you haven't figured that out yet. We're constantly chasing after validation, constantly fixated on what others think about us. And, and our desperate pursuit of validation, respect, and approval can only leave us wanting as the fragile ego creates this life of bondage. I shared this quote in a previous sermon series. I'll share it again because it's culturally relevant, I think. Madonna, in an interview with Vogue magazine several years back, she said the following She said, quote, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, she says, and I guess it never will. That's Haman having become the prime minister of the Persian Empire and yet miserably unhappy. And if we're honest, we've all lived and breathed some of that air, have we not? Our sense of self is broken. We'll do anything to mask the pain, whether it be comparing ourselves to others, beating our chests about things that don't matter, in the most extreme cases, mass genocide. And the terrifying thing is is that pride, which is at the root of all of it, is the sin that we're most blind to. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, killing you without you having any ability to tell it's happening. It's odorless. By definition, the more proud you are, and therefore the more in its clutches you are, the less proud you think you are. Or as Joseph Epstein said in his book on humility, quote, so many people hate snobs. But you can only hate snobs if you feel superior to them, which means that hating snobbery is a form of snobbery. You can't win. And and here's the the thing. Let me come back to to chapter 2. Going back to last week, we talked a little bit about the, the way that we embrace the beauty treatments of the world, this effort to try to enhance our image before God and and other people. And so we grab hold of things that make us look good. But there's a real sense in which there's an, there's an opposite way to go about that, which is just to point out the ugly in everyone else so that you escape seeing it in yourself. We do that too, right? I mean, the reality is most of us are not going to allow our pride to lead to mass genocide. And so it's really easy, and we should do this, to point the finger at neo-Nazi rallies down the street and go, come on, are you kidding me right now? Like, this thing is still happening in the human heart. And we should call that out. We should address it. But not at the expense of going, where's the Haman in me? Where do I struggle with anger? Where do I struggle with pride in my own life? Because I'm most blind to it in my own heart, in my own life. God, help us. Where's the hope? We're meant to ask that question. How can we know and taste the freedom of self-forgetfulness? As C.S. Lewis describes it, a life of feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Wouldn't that be nice? Where's the hope? The answer, if you've been around for more than a week, you know where I'm going with this, right? The answer is always the gospel. Only the gospel can free us from the bondage to our fragile human egos. Only the gospel can free us from destroying ourselves and others in this never-ending pursuit of approval and respect and self-glory. The gospel says that we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, yet we're so loved that he was glad to do it. 
were so bad that he had to die for us. Coming back to this morning's passage, the response of the king toward the Jewish people is really how God has every right to respond to us. If you use the language of Esther chapter 3, it's not to God's prophet to tolerate us. We break his law over and over and over again. We rebel against his kingship. Our pride condemns us. We're just like our first parents in the garden going back to Genesis 3 in that way. And unlike the Persian king, God, the king of the universe, can't be bought. We can't bring enough intrinsic value, enough proverbial silver to the table to merit his favor and approval. Not to mention that like Haman, Satan presents this running list of reasons that God should destroy us. And how does God respond? Well, I'll I'll let Ian Dugan in his commentary speak for me. He says, God responds in this way. Satan, do with my son as seems good to you. Let him be punished for sin, but let his people go. Destroy, kill, annihilate Jesus, for sin must be paid for. Plunder his few goods and distribute them among those who are putting him to death. Torture and mock him. Execute him on a cross. But as for my people, you shall not touch them. We're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, yet we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. You could say it this way. Unlike Haman, who seeks to punish the many on behalf of the one, in Christ, God punishes the one on behalf of the many, including you and me. Coming back to that Passover imagery, Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. He's the true Passover lamb. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. He lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live, qualifying to die in the place of sinners like you and me as our substitute so that death could pass over us, that Jesus died for the Haman in all of us. He was counted proud so that we, the proud, might be counted humble. The gospel reveals to us a God who would stoop down into the slums of human history, a God who would die the most humiliating of deaths in the public square, that you could say humility finds its origin in the very character and being of God. I'm so sinful and proud that Jesus had to die for me. That's incredibly humbling. Yet I'm so loved that Jesus was happy to die for me. That's incredibly encouraging. Hear me this morning. You're you're loved accepted and approved of in Christ. You don't have to live a life, to use Lewis's words, of ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live like Haman. Again, to use Lewis's words, you really can feel the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. That the more we soak in the truth of the gospel, the more truly free we become. And the more passionate about spreading the gospel to others we become. That we have a message to take. That, that, that it's a message that's very different from the message of death and despair that went forth throughout the Persian Empire. Instead of this, this royal edict of death, God has invited us in as his pony express, you could say, to carry forth the life-giving edict of the gospel to a world in desperate need of good news. But we've got to soak in that good news for ourselves first and be changed by it. In a moment, we're going to move into a, a time and space in our service to do just that. In a moment, we're going to worship in a number of ways, continue to worship through song. Uh, there will be people in the back of the room to pray with and for you if you'd like to take advantage of, of prayer. We'll receive communion throughout the rest of the service. The tables are open if you're a Christian. 
That meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to come receive of the bread and the cup this morning, just just stop for a moment and soak in the the beautiful reality that, that in Christ we've been set free from this empty chase of respect and approval and, and glory that if you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter of the living God. You are loved deeply, church.